Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to the intersection of science, history, and the unexplained. My name is Erin, and I am your existential examiner and clairaudience companion. Let's see if we can figure out what in the Sam Hill is going on out there. Wow, has it been a while since the last episode. Part of that is because I really wanted to do justice to this topic, which grew increasingly complex as I researched further, so you will see that this is a longer episode than normal. Also, I've had some stuff going on in my personal life. Uh, We had to check my aunt out of skilled nursing to stay at my parents' house because Medicare kindly refused to pay for both skilled nursing and chemotherapy. Ain't that nice? And then on top of that, my dog developed an eye ulcer, and I spent the last couple of weeks trying to make sure he got to keep his eye, to the point where I was literally having to put drops in his eye every two hours. When it rains, it pours, for sure. But hey, fun fact, I found out today that my seventh great-grandmother was second cousins with Thomas Jefferson in a lineage that traces back to King Edward III of England, so you can call me Princess Erin from now on. (laughs) No, but seriously, that probably does mean I'm on some weird elite watch list somewhere in addition to having my own NSA team just for the weird stuff I Google. At least when I die, no one can say my life was boring. But here we are together at last, so let's get to it. This week we are examining a different sort of nobility, the infamous Lady Dracula, the Blood Countess Elizabeth Bathory. Elizabeth was a 16th, 17th century Hungarian noblewoman who has been accused of being the most prolific female serial killer in all of human history, and one of the most prolific serial killers in general, regardless of gender. She supposedly tortured and killed some 650-ish young women and drank and bathed in their blood in eternal chase for youth. It's a story that has honestly bothered me for a while now. Surely if the technique was effective, someone would have mentioned the old widow not looking so old anymore. And if the technique wasn't effective, she would have stopped somewhere before 650 and thought, hmm, better try something else. We know from Bram Stoker's notes that he read Sabine Baring Gould's Book of Werewolves in his research for the famous book Dracula. In the Book of Werewolves, there is the following passage on Elizabeth. Elizabeth was wont to dress well in order to please her husband, and she spent half the day over her toilet. On one occasion, a lady's maid saw something wrong in her headdress, and as a recompense for observing it, received such a severe box on the ears that the blood gushed from her nose and spurted onto her mistress's face. When the blood drops were washed off her face, her skin appeared much more beautiful, whiter, and more transparent on the spots where the blood had been. Elizabeth formed the resolution to bathe her face and her whole body in human blood so as to enhance her beauty. Two old women and a certain Fitzgo assisted her in the undertaking. This monster used to kill the luckless victim, and the old women caught the blood, in which Elizabeth was wont to bathe at the hour of four in the morning. After the bath, she appeared more beautiful from before. She continued this habit after the death of her husband in the hopes of gaining new suitors. The unhappy girls who were allured to the castle under the plea that they were to be taken into service there were locked up in a cellar. Here they were beaten till their bodies were swollen. 
Elizabeth not unfrequently tortured the victims herself. Often she changed their clothes, which stripped with blood, and then renewed her cruelties. The swollen bodies were then cut up with razors. Occasionally she had the girls burned and then cut up, but the great majority were beaten to death. At last, her cruelty became so great that she would stick needles into those who sat with her in a carriage, especially if they were of her own sex. One of her servant girls she stripped naked, smeared her with honey, and so drove her out of the house. When she was ill and could not indulge her cruelty, she bit a person who came near her sickbed as though she were a wild beast. She caused, in all, the death of 650 girls, some in Tishida on the neutral ground, where she had a cellar constructed for the purpose, others in different localities, for the murder and bloodshed were her necessity. When at last the parents of the lost children could no longer be cajoled, the castle was seized and the traces of the murders were discovered. Her accomplices were executed and she was imprisoned for life. So I have set my sights on figuring out what of that was truth, what of that was legend, and was she really the living vampire of lore that helped inspire Bram Stoker's Dracula? First, a little background on Hungary at the time. Unlike Western Europe, Hungary was very much feudal still, and not only was serfdom the common practice, but the extent of the serfdom conditions had just been expanded as backlash for a failed serf uprising. Nominally, Hungary was ruled by the Holy Roman Emperor, but in practice, the nobles still held an incredible amount of power in the operation of daily life, as did the church. The nobles paid taxes to the king, but the operations of their estates and the associated towns, as well as the punishment of nefarious activities therein, largely fell on the nobles. The church then handled things like property deeds and marriage licenses. Primarily, this was not the Catholic Church, though the Holy Roman Emperor was obviously Catholic. The Protestant Reformation had been readily accepted in Hungary, and the nobles and their townsfolk were almost all varying forms of Protestant. Elizabeth, for example, was raised Calvinist. This religious landscape was mostly well tolerated. Because of the frequent conflicts with the Ottoman Turks, to some extent it didn't matter what you were as long as you weren't Muslim. There was an increase in tensions under King Matthias, but you certainly don't see the level of Catholic-Protestant animus that was manifesting in England at the time, for example. For the first half of Elizabeth's life, Hungary was relatively peaceful and prosperous, as there was a detente of sorts that divided Hungary into three parts. Royal Hungary was under control of the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor and was heavily influenced by Western Europe. Transylvania was under the control of a local prince and was thoroughly Eastern European in culture. And Ottoman Hungary was under the control of the Ottoman Turks and was thusly influenced. This detente was short-lived, however, and the second half of Elizabeth's life was marred by war, famine, and disease. And it was under this shroud of chaos that Elizabeth committed her crimes. Elizabeth came from the very old and well-established Bathory clan, with her father and mother coming from different branches of the same clan. Interestingly, her family had connections with Vlad the Impaler, also known as Vlad Dracula, who was obviously the other main influence for the character of Dracula. On her father's side, her great-granduncle had been a close ally of Vlad, and her first cousin twice removed was actually married to Vlad. Elizabeth was quite beautiful. Tall, pale, voluptuous, with dark hair. She reminds me a bit of the Morticia Adams aesthetic. 
She was also extremely intelligent. She was educated in math and the classics. She could read and write fluently in Latin, Greek, German, her native Hungarian, and Slovak, the language of most of her servants. Because she grew up in royal Hungary, she was also exposed to Western European scholarship. It likewise meant that she despised Transylvania and the Transylvanian branch of the Bathory clan, a bit of an elitist in that respect. Some accounts, including that from the Book of Werewolves, claim that she was quite vain, spending hours grooming herself, and that vanity was a motive for her literal bloodbaths. This could also have been partially a product of growing up in royal Hungary. Though she did not regularly attend court, she certainly would have grown up feeling pressure to live up to the popular aesthetic for the purposes of marriage. Not only do we know that looks were put on a pedestal at court for the purposes of arranging marriages, but we also know that Elizabeth didn't quite fit the ideal aesthetic of the time, which is modeled after the fair-haired Lucretia Borgia. If the reports of her vanity are true, it may have been vanity masking insecurity. For though she was considered beautiful, it was in her own way, and not the conventional way. What we know from the few letters of Elizabeth that have been recovered is that Elizabeth was proper to a T, even in her letters to her husband Franz. She was exacting in her language, explicit with her directions, and careful to not show too much emotion save for her frequent praises of God. She was extremely fastidious. She oversaw, if not outright managed, every single transaction on her more than 20 estates, down to the sale of a couple onion wreaths. She also sometimes took up local causes one might not expect of a murderer. It wasn't unusual for nobles to be advocates for their people in communication with other nobles, but some of Elizabeth's causes might not be what one would expect of someone accused of crimes against women. For example, we have a letter where she advocated on behalf of a peasant woman whose house was robbed and whose daughter was raped by the servants of another noble. As they were not her servants, it was not her jurisdiction to punish them, so instead she advocated with the other noble that the men should be punished accordingly. That's not to say, of course, that she should be considered for the Calvinist version of sainthood, but it certainly adds a layer of complexity to her story. Elizabeth was married off young to a member of the not-quite-as-well-established, but extremely wealthy, Nadasti family. Engaged at age 11, it was common at the time for engaged girls to move into their fiancé's home to learn the ways of managing a household from their future mother-in-law. Elizabeth did just that, but her mother-in-law Ursula had already passed away. She seems to have learned household management through trial by fire, with assistance from her husband Franz. Her early letters to staff reflect a polite timidity that grew to confident, bold directives as the years progressed. There is speculation that Elizabeth gave birth to a child by a peasant boy while living in the household prior to her marriage. The story goes that she was such a tomboy that she played with local boys and oops, pops out a baby. Not only would that be unusual, given what we know of the expectations for young engaged girls, but also those allegations, as well as allegations of later adultery, lesbianism, and possible incest with her Aunt Clara, didn't arise until the 1904 work of R.A. von Ellsberg, nearly three centuries after Elizabeth's death. More recent scholarship has seemingly debunked all of these claims. At the age of 14, Elizabeth married Franz, then 20. 
They remained childless during the first decade of their marriage. Some say this is because Elizabeth was actively avoiding pregnancy, but more likely this was simply bad timing, as Franz, a national war hero, was frequently away on raiding parties. They eventually got around to parenthood, though, and had three children, two daughters and a son, that lived into adulthood. When their son Paul, the youngest, was only six years old, Franz died from an illness developed in battle that involved leg weakness. This left Elizabeth in a bit of a pickle. When Franz was alive, the fortunes of war kept their coffers overflowing, so much so that Franz actually made a hefty loan to King Rudolf. Without those blood spoils and with three young children, Elizabeth's finances grew increasingly tight. And though she made repeated requests for repayment of the loan to both King Rudolf and his successor, his brother Matthias, they conveniently kept ignoring her request, despite having the funds to make repayment. Elizabeth was a force to be reckoned with, though. She managed all of their estates and served in local government until her son Paul was old enough to take his father's place at the ripe old age of 12. She arranged marriages of both daughters to minor nobility, the equivalent of today's middle class or more probably upper middle class. She paid for both of her daughter's weddings and provided them with gold wares and such. Elizabeth fought off several attempts of other nobles to acquire some of her unoccupied estates by what amounts to squatting. There had been other widows who lost their properties to forced acquisitions, let's say. It was also not uncommon for the estates of Hungarian nobles to be seized by the king to cover the costs of war. But Elizabeth was no shrinking violet and refused to fall victim in the same way, which is pretty impressive considering her estates were spread across what is now multiple countries. She was a true virago, a strong woman who possessed many virtues associated with masculinity. While the word has come to be a pejorative, in Elizabeth's day it was seen as honorable and was well accepted in Hungarian society. Unfortunately, Elizabeth was also probably a mass murderer. Now, Elizabeth herself was never tried of any crimes. Four supposed accomplices, who were all servants of hers, were tried and convicted. But Elizabeth had an agreement between her family and Count Thorzo, the Palatine or Prime Minister of Hungary. The agreement confined Elizabeth to a room in one of her castles, a name I couldn't pronounce correctly if I tried, but I'm going to call it Katish, in exchange for never going to trial, never testifying, and never having the opportunity to be executed for any crime she may or may not have been convicted of. This plea deal, for lack of a better term, means we will probably never know the true extent of her crimes. It's not like we have complex forensics available in 1610. Obviously, there were no DNA samples, but there wasn't really any physical evidence at all. No autopsy results were presented. No bodies were exhumed. They just didn't have the capabilities of documenting that kind of evidence. Instead, the pretrial investigations and trials of her servants were full of nothing but witness statements not all of which were even first-hand accounts. Unlike courts of today, under Hungarian law at the time, witnesses were allowed to speak on rumor, particularly in pretrial investigations, as long as they acknowledged the information was hearsay. Not only that, because Elizabeth was not the target of the trials of her accomplices and never testified herself, there is likely information that never did and never will come to light. From Elizabeth's perspective, the plea deal kept her head attached, allowed her children to inherit, and allowed her family to remain nobles. 
Count Thorzo, too, had motivations for the plea deal. He was the Palatine, so he would have wanted to maintain order, particularly the social order of the noble-peasant relations. Putting a noble on trial could have set a very bad precedent. After all, the killing of servants and peasants was unseemly, but it was only the killing of other nobles that was truly criminal and drew attention to Elizabeth. Targeting Elizabeth also meant targeting her family, and while the Bathory and Nadasti clan's reputations were never quite the same after the trials, the fallout would have been substantial in towns all over several countries from the power vacuum of a true overthrow. And for what? It couldn't bring any victims back from the dead, but it could absolutely lead to a lot more bloodshed as other nobles moved in to fill the void. It also would punish the innocent, or mostly innocent. There's no evidence that her family participated in any of her crimes, and it's possible that they didn't even know of it. Distant relatives wouldn't have been traveling much to visit given the wartime conditions, her daughters were living off with their husbands, her son Paul was but a child, and given Hungarian practice at the time, would have been under the care of his tutor who acted as Paul's legal guardian after the death of his father. While Paul's tutor, Imre Magiri, was one of the people who initially made complaints about Elizabeth's behavior to authorities, it's possible that none of Elizabeth's family knew anything other than vague rumors. Furthermore, Count Thorzo had been a particularly close friend and confidant of Elizabeth's husband Franz before his death, to the point where Elizabeth affectionately referred to Thorzo as family. Helping preserve the Bathory and Nerasti families and assets from the ramifications of Elizabeth's misdeeds would have felt like the proper course of action to honor Count Thorzo's dearly departed friend. There are several theories on the case, as would be expected even if the crimes happened today, but even more so as we try to interpret the goings-on of 400 years ago in a language as complex as Hungarian. The Hungarian aspect is something I should mention. Similar to how the English language has a lot fewer these and thous than in the era of Queen Elizabeth I, the Hungarian language has changed a lot in the last 400 years, so it's a struggle for modern translators to parse through the extant documents related to Elizabeth, compounded with the normal wear and fading that the documents have suffered. In addition, the Hungarian language is similar to Latin in that it has no articles. These, A's, etc. are presumed. So in the letters and trial documents, assumptions have to be made based on context clues. Where the testimony made sense 400 years ago, it's possible that parts are assumed to be talking about Elizabeth, but could actually be referring to another woman due to the vague sentence structure. Because I speak literally zero Hungarian, I am 100% dependent on the translations of those better equipped to make those determinations, so I'm trusting that they translated the letters correctly. The prevailing theories, and mind you some of these overlap, are that Elizabeth was guilty of being a living vampire, that Elizabeth was guilty of murder but not vampirism, that Elizabeth was the victim of a political conspiracy to confiscate her lands or forever avoid repaying the loan that Franz gave to the king, or both, and that Elizabeth was the victim of a misogynistic plot similar to the witch trials with the intention of victimizing and acquiring the lands and goods of a poor helpless woman or a woman who was seen as a threat by the insecure men around her. 
As we get into this, I'm going to try my best to limit my analysis of the trial to the information I gleaned from the trial documents themselves, as translated and published in the appendix of Kimberly Craft's book, Infamous Lady, and from Rachel Lee Bledsaw's thesis, No Blood in the Water. I really enjoyed Bledsaw's thesis because I found it to be quite impartial and quite honest in analyzing Elizabeth via a distinctly historical and not modern lens. Those who have penned popular history books on Elizabeth have fallen victim to a bit more sensationalism, which I guess is understandable given the sensational nature of the case and the need to sell books. For what it's worth, Rachel Lee Bledsaw thinks Elizabeth probably did commit at least some of what she was accused of, given that she accepted the plea deal willingly. Bledsaw also feels a politically motivated or misogynistic conspiracy against Elizabeth was unlikely, given that the trial process was consistent with the rules of the Tripartitum, Hungary's Manual of Legal Procedure and Customs at the time, that the lone IOU would not have died with Elizabeth, but instead would have passed from Elizabeth to Paul, just as it had passed from Franz to Elizabeth, that the Bathory and Nadasti families were able to maintain all titles, properties, and assets after the trial, and that Virago was actually a well-respected personality type in 17th century Hungary. But let's get into the information found in the infamous lady appendix. The first thing that struck me in going through the trial documents was just how few people had any direct knowledge of the incidents. Yes, they interviewed over 300 people, but that number includes those that said they knew absolutely nothing. And the vast majority of the witness statements were along the lines of, I have seen nothing and I know nothing, but I heard that she abused her servants and maybe even killed a couple at her daughter's wedding. Of people with any direct knowledge, we also get conflicting reports. Obviously provided testimony that was beneficial to their own cases, so inconsistencies there are to be expected. But even her staff that wasn't on trial provided contradictory information, even sometimes with themselves. All of the men at Castle Savar agreed that the male staff were not allowed into Elizabeth's house on site, which is where the torture supposedly happened in a secret inner chamber. But Benedictus Biserti, one of the wardens at Castle Savar, claimed in one account that 175 girls were killed in his time at Savar, and then in another account agreed with another member of staff that said 80 girls were killed. So I don't really know what to make of that without having tone, intonation, body language, or any ability to directly translate medieval Hungarian for my own con of the inconsistencies were. But it definitely seems like most of the information given at the trial was provided not so much for the finding of fact, but rather for the documentation of how widespread rumors of her behavior were as a justification for the trial proceedings. As far as the crimes themselves, and not just rumors, we really only get relevant information from the accomplices, who, as I said, definitely colored their testimony to help themselves. But we can cross-reference these testimonies to try and pull out the common threads. And again, before I expound on that, I want to reiterate that because of the nature of the Hungarian language, it's impossible to tell for sure if the crimes attributed to Elizabeth were supposed to be attributed to Anna Darvolio, one of Elizabeth's servants, or not. The translation I'm using is just the best I'm going to be able to do. 
One thing that surprised me also was that most of the killing was not done by Elizabeth herself. Again, her accomplices. So there certainly may be a slant to what they're saying, but they did still admit that Elizabeth killed some girls, so it's not like they were claiming her as innocent. When we think of the legend of Elizabeth Bathory, we think of a brutal serial killer who showed violence from a young age and then beat young women until she was covered in blood and then drank and bathed in the blood. Most serial killers aren't less violent than their underlings, but that's what we see in the testimony. According to what the accomplices said, Elizabeth didn't actually kill until after Anna Davrolia joined the household in 1601 and taught Elizabeth the ways of torture. When Darvolia joined the household, she was killing girls and she brought the other accomplices into the fold. It was then that Elizabeth became more cruel, suggesting she was not as violent in childhood as the stereotypical serial killer. Elizabeth certainly did torture girls, and I feel certain that some died from the torture. Everyone's tolerance for torture is different, plus you have the added component of secondary infection in a damp, dirty torture chamber. But we also see at least one incident where Elizabeth had tortured servants. Then Dorka, one of the accomplices, starved the girls without Elizabeth's knowledge. So when Elizabeth needed a servant for the trip, there was none available because all of the girls were dead. Elizabeth did not seem to do anything to stop her underlings from continuing their reign of terror. We also learn that Elizabeth did more precise torture, but not so much the beatings, which makes sense given her meticulous personality. I would expect a meticulous person to expect perfection and to carry out their punishments with the same exacting precision they expect from their staff. To then switch to the rough and tumble method of beating seems out of character. We do have one incident in the testimony where she beat a girl until her own clothes were soaked with blood, but often it was remarked that she performed her torture through her accomplices. I can certainly see a situation where Elizabeth may perform a horrific and painstaking torture, commiserate with her intelligence and personality, and then when she got bored, tell her underlings to just take it from there. She may not really have even cared if the girls lived or died at that point. We will never know her motivations or why she didn't get rid of Anno Darvolia from the beginning and avoided this route entirely, but the testimony to me does disprove a few myths of her legend. I feel pretty confident that 650 women were not killed. There was only one account in the testimony that gave the 650 number, and I find it implausible. A girl heard from a guy that he found Elizabeth's little black book that had all of her victims listed by name to the tune of 650, but this book was never presented at trial. While Elizabeth certainly had the personality for that kind of record keeping, it doesn't seem that Elizabeth was privy herself to how many girls died and when. Because unlike the financial transactions of her estates, it seems like in this aspect, she allowed her underlings to kill girls and dispose of their bodies without direct oversight. And it's equally implausible that she would have known the name of every single peasant girl she tortured. Most of the total estimated numbers were less than 100, and the accomplices said that the total number killed was only around 50. I'm sure that 50 is probably low, given that there was incentive for the accomplices to lie, but I feel confident that the actual tally was not 650. 
There is also no evidence that any blood was collected from the victims. None of the witness statements allude to this aspect of the legend, and not only do they not describe the collection of blood, they also don't describe any injuries that would have been conducive to collecting blood. We don't hear of slit wrists or throats, no beheadings, no bloodletting in the same manner as doctors of that age. If blood was her goal, she seems extremely ineffective and inefficient at attaining it. Again, something at odds with her personality. Ultimately, I think there may have been a psychological motivation to Elizabeth's portion of the crimes. Two testimonies really stuck out to me. One was that Elizabeth would burn the genitals of some of the girls using a candle. This seems out of character with her other torture methods. Elizabeth liked torture that creatively provided an eye for an eye, so seamstresses that failed while sewing, perhaps by accidentally pricking Elizabeth, were themselves sewn through the skin as torture. But there's no need to burn the genitals of a victim when your husband is dead and therefore definitely not cheating on you with the peasantry. The other testimony that stuck out was that Elizabeth made a German woman who had a toddler son dress up like a young maiden who would be, you know, a virgin at that time. When the German woman protested that she was no longer a maiden as she had a son, Elizabeth made her suckle a log in place of a baby. So Elizabeth wasn't after that sweet, sweet virgin blood. Her victims didn't even need to be actual virgins. She just wanted them to look that way. All of that makes me wonder if Elizabeth wasn't acting out crimes that happened to her when she was a young maiden as a sick, twisted way to regain control. Perhaps those rumors of her getting pregnant by a peasant boy before her marriage were true, but they happened as a result of violent rape perpetrated against her. A rape and unwanted pregnancy followed by having your baby ripped away from you and sent to another country never to be seen again? That is the kind of trauma that could really mess with somebody. I obviously don't have any evidence of this, it's just speculation, but I do think it's interesting that Elizabeth's torture included a sexual component and were psychologically targeted at young maidens. It smells like childhood trauma to me. Various people have speculated as to why King Matthias was insistent on Elizabeth being tried and killed as opposed to accepting the Thorzo Agreement. The most common explanation being financially motivated so he could avoid repaying the loan and could confiscate her properties on top of that. But in reading the letters and trial documents, I was surprised to see that the cause may have been personally motivated. There was an incident where, as the investigation is progressing, Elizabeth tries to solve her problems by poisoning Count Thorzo and Emre McGarry, her son Paul's tutor. But when I looked in the letters, King Matthias was named as a third attempted victim. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty pissed if someone tried to off me. I would be looking at execution too, especially if I'm the king and really don't need my nobles getting a big head thinking they can get one over on me. The manner of the poisoning was really interesting too. Elizabeth was very much into the occult arts, particularly alchemy, herbology, and astrology from what I can tell. She had an occultist on staff, Erzi Majorova, nicknamed the Mistress of Miava, who was executed for her part in Elizabeth's criminal enterprise on January 24th, 1611, a few days after what is considered the accomplices. 
According to the documents, Erzy drew a special bath with herbs for Elizabeth that was to be used at four o'clock. This being the infamous four o'clock bath that led to the rumor of the four o'clock bloodbaths, I guess? Anyway, the water was mostly dumped in the creek afterwards, but some was kept to bake into the offending food, which would cause me to get sick anyway as soon as I found out what the heck I was eating. The food caused stomach issues with just the first bite, so none of the men ate enough to die. But that begs the question, what filth was in that bathwater? I believe it was antimony, and I believe antimony may have played a part in Elizabeth's saga. We get an account buried in the testimony that her administrator at Katish asked another noble to go to the pharmacy to pick up a certain drug for her. The pharmacist would not give the noble any of the medicine until the noble provided him with a letter from the castle administrator because the drug was so dangerous and the pharmacist told the noble that there was enough of the substance to kill hundreds of people. We also learned that that drug was antimony. Now, this was used as evidence against Elizabeth, but I don't think it's evidence in the way they meant it. There was zero evidence that any of the girls died from antimony poisoning, so whatever Elizabeth had planned for the antimony was not for the girls. Antimony was relatively expensive and definitely not something to waste on peasantry. But I will say that poisoning is a more characteristically feminine method of murder, so using the drug would be more consistent with the calculating woman that Elizabeth was, rather than the beatings that were claimed. Back to the point at hand, though. We know Elizabeth had a fair amount of antimony, probably in the form of strybnite powder. Antimony is toxic in large enough doses, but at the time it was used in medicine as a purgative and emetic which means that the stomach complaints caused by the poisoned food is consistent with antimony. Antimony was known as the gray wolf or the wolf of metals because it bonds to and seemingly devours all metals except gold. For this reason, it was used in alchemy to purify gold, which may be one reason that Elizabeth had it, assuming she was actually dabbling in the alchemical arts and not just reading about it. In medicine, it was thought that antimony would purify the body as it did gold, and the purging of the body from both ends was the desired result. Remember, these are the same people who would remove the blood from your body so that you could get healthy, as if anemia just wasn't a thing. Generally speaking though, antimony as a purgative medicine was at this time typically found in the form of a perpetual pellet. I hope by now you've stopped eating, so this won't be too much of a shock, but a perpetual pellet was a pill-shaped pellet of antimony metal. If you were in need of a rebalancing of the humors by purging, you would swallow the pellet and allow it to work in the body, essentially by irritating the digestive system. By the time you passed the pellet in your stool, the purging and rebalancing would have been complete. You could then sift through your excrement, find the pellet of antimony still intact, and dust it off for use the next time you needed a little dose. Not only that, these perpetual pellets were often passed from one generation to the next. It was the economically sensible thing to do while also being nightmare fuel. So the fact that Elizabeth had a large amount of antimony not in perpetual pellet form means that she wasn't using it for her own internal use but she also didn't just bake fresh poison into the cakes. She bathed in it first. 
That makes sense for economic reasons. Why waste expensive antimony if you didn't need to? But it also means the poisoning was the afterthought. The bath was the primary use. Antimony has a long and complex history. It was used in coal form to darken the eyelids of Egyptians. It was used in Greece for skin conditions. And in Serbia in Elizabeth's era, contrary to the Western European use as a purgative anemetic, antimony was being prescribed for skin necrosis, nosebleeds, and hemorrhoids. We know that Elizabeth lived a life that straddled the Western and Eastern European worlds. For example, her morning color of choice was red, not black, a distinctly Eastern European choice. And the mistress of Miava was of Slovak origin. Perhaps Elizabeth was using antimony as part of a regular treatment for hemorrhoids or something of that nature. Unfortunately for Elizabeth, antimony is also a neurodegenerative heavy metal and possibly a carcinogen. If she was regularly using antimony, it could have built up in her system. We know that Elizabeth complained of headaches later in her life. This is proof for many that she was an epileptic, but I wonder if it hints to a degradation of the nervous system as a result of consistent antimony usage. I also wonder if that degradation may also explain at least some of her behavior. Elizabeth was certainly more cruel than I could ever be, heavy metals or otherwise. But generally speaking, historians agree that she would never have been punished if she hadn't moved from peasants to nobles. The claim is that she ran out of peasants, but as we discussed, I don't think nearly as many women were killed as has been claimed. And Elizabeth did have over 20 properties where she could have selected victims from the surrounding areas. It seems unlikely that she just ran out of victims. So why make the switch to nobles? It's a rare break of sensibility in someone so meticulous. It reminds me of the Tri-State Crematorium, which is also nightmare fuel. I guess that's the theme for this episode. You may already have heard of the incident because it was national news back around 20 years ago now, but for my international listeners, Tri-State was a crematorium in Northwest Georgia, just about an hour from where I grew up, where cops found bodies just everywhere, inside, outside, years and years of bodies piling up where families were getting concrete dust in their urns. It's a very weird story with no concrete answers. Sorry, I had to. Anyway, I watched a really good YouTube video about it by Ask a Mortician a few years back. If I find the video again, I'll put it in the show notes. But she said that the best guess on that case is that due to lack of proper ventilation, both the father and son who owned Tri-State likely got Mad Hatter's disease or mercury poisoning from the amalgams in the dental work of the bodies. It's sort of the only thing that makes sense given that the crematorium machines were all in working order and not all of the bodies were left to rot. Many were actually processed correctly. So that makes me wonder if Elizabeth may have been making poor decisions at the end of her life in part because of antimony-induced neurodegeneration. Through all of this analysis, I feel it's clear that Elizabeth Bathory was definitely not a vampire, and probably not even as murderous as she is made to seem. But she is definitely an occult practitioner, so I want to explore that a little bit before we close out. In the testimony, we hear that the mistress of Miava met with Elizabeth to perform a spell that would prevent harm from coming to her through the investigation. 
In some ways, I suppose it worked because Elizabeth was able to live out a few more years in isolation before dying of a probable heart attack, but because they had a scribe present to write down their spell, we actually have the text in the testimony and we learn that they waited all day until just the right moment to call out to the heavens with the spell text. Help, oh help you clouds, help clouds, give health, give Elizabeth Bathory health. Send, oh send forth you clouds, 90 cats. I command you, leader of the cats, that you hear my command and assemble them together from wherever they may be, whether they are on the other side of the mountain, beyond the water, beyond the sea, that these 90 cats come to you and from you should go straight into the heart of King Matthias and also the heart of the Palatine. In the same way, they should chew to pieces the heart of the Red McGarry and the heart of Moses Siraki, so that Elizabeth Bathory should not suffer any grief. Holy Trinity, so it is done. Not exactly going to be winning any Pulitzer Prizes, but I trust that it rolled off the tongue a little bit better in whatever language it was originally written in. But we have 90 cats and a leader of the cats. Why? I'm still working through how I feel about this spell or prayer or whatever you want to call it. I couldn't find the original Hungarian, so again, I'm working off someone else's translation, but I figure cat is probably hard to mess up. So who is the leader of the cats, and why would he or she be sending specifically 90 instead of just a butt ton? I don't know, but I have some thoughts. First would be the Egyptian goddess Beset. Beset was the daughter of the sun god Ra and was worshipped at Memphis. She was considered the patron deity of the family and of the ointment jars, which would cover all the herbal recipes used in healing and in beautification. Because of this, she is also considered a goddess of witchcraft. Especially with the references to healing, even though they were really asking for a situational remedy, not a physical remedy, I could certainly see a deity like Beset being involved. Second would be the star Regulus in the constellation of Leo. Regulus means little prince or leader, and Leo, of course, is lion, which we call king of the jungle or king of the beasts. Regulus is the brightest star on the ecliptic and clearly visible with the naked eye. Leo was also associated with the sun and the golden age of the zodiacal great year, so there is an association with kingship and with blessings. The story goes that Elizabeth and Ursi were looking up at the sky before reciting the prayer, so it makes sense that they were looking for something specific up there, like a constellation or a planetary conjunction. Leo is visible in late December. In early evening, when I presume the spell would have been spoken, Leo would be in the eastern sky and then would shine all night, so it's a possibility. Then thirdly, there is a folktale in England called the King of Cats. There are several versions, but allow me to read one. One winter's evening, the sexton's wife was sitting by the fireside with her big black cat, Old Tom, on the side, both half asleep and waiting for the master to come home. They waited and they waited, but still he didn't come, till at last he came rushing in and calling out, Who's Tommy Tildrum? in such a wild way that both his wife and his cat stared at him to know what was the matter. Why, what's the matter, said his wife, and why do you want to know who Tommy Tildrum is? Oh, I've had such an adventure. I was digging away at Mr. Fordyce's grave when I suppose I must have dropped asleep, 
and only woke up by hearing a cat's meow. Meow, said old Tom in answer. Yes, just like that. So I looked over the edge of the grave and what do you think I saw? Now how can I tell, said the sexton's wife. Why, nine black cats, all like our friend Tom here, all with a white spot on their chestesses. And what do you think they were carrying? Why, a small coffin covered with a black velvet pall. And on the pall was a small coronet all of gold. And at every third step they took, they cried all together, Meow! Meow, said old Tom again. Yes, just like that, said the sexton. And as they came nearer and nearer to me, I could see them more distinctly because their eyes shone out with a sort of green light. Well, they all came towards me, eight of them carrying the coffin and the biggest cat of all walking in front for all the world like, but look at our Tom, how he's looking at me. You'd think he knew all I was saying. Go on, go on, said his wife. Never mind, old Tom. Well, as I was a saying, they came towards me slowly and solemnly and at every third step crying all together, meow. Meow, said old Tom again, yes, just like that, till they came and stood right opposite Mr. Fordyce's grave, where I was, when they all stood still and looked straight at me. I did feel queer, that I did, but look at old Tom, he's looking at me just like they did. Go on, go on, said his wife, never mind old Tom. Where was I? Oh, they stood still looking at me, when the one that wasn't carrying the coffin came forward and stared straight at me, and said to me, Yes, I tell ye, said to me with a squeaky voice, tell Tom Tildrum that Tim Tildrum's dead. And that's why I asked you if you knew who Tom Tildrum was. For how can I tell Tom Tildrum that Tim Tildrum's dead if I don't know who Tom Tildrum is? Look at old Tom, look at old Tom, screamed his wife. And well, he may look for old Tom was swelling and Tom was staring and at last Tom shrieked out, What? Old Tim dead? Then I'm king of the cats, and rushed up the chimney and was never more seen. So the nine cats are definitely messages of death in this story. If Elizabeth's spell was a reference to the king of the cats, she may have been asking for Matthias, Thorzo, Magieri, and Moses to die. Or maybe she was asking for the cats to announce her death so they wouldn't think that she was worth pursuing. Additionally, the king of cats story is considered a type of pan story where Plutarch relates that a ship captain hears a disembodied voice telling him to announce the death of the Greek god Pan. Thus, Elizabeth's spell could have a link to the Pan archetype or to the overthrow of the Pan archetype associated with the change of the zodiacal age from Aries to Pisces. As I said, I'm still working through this in my brain space, so if you have any thoughts, please share. The other thing I want to discuss is the possibility that Elizabeth was performing ritual human sacrifice. Again, I don't think Elizabeth was participating in vampirism, though I do find it interesting that drinking blood was an accepted medical treatment for epilepsy, to the point that people were collecting blood from beheaded criminals, but vampirism was feared. Where exactly is that moral line? It's not like the criminals are consenting to their bodies being consumed. Also, since you're technically drinking the blood of a dead person, are there necrophagia added layers of moral issues on top of the cannibalism? But that's an aside. Just because she wasn't a vampire doesn't mean she wasn't murdering for occult purposes. In the context of the Abrahamic religions, the Abraham offering Isaac but sacrificing a lamb instead incident is considered the end of human sacrifice. 
I see this in the context of the overthrow of Saturn by Jupiter as Saturn slash Kronos is associated with eating his children. It also could be the changing of the zodiacal age from Taurus to Aries, which is a major source of conflict in the Torah if you read the work of Ralph Ellis. We also see the Saturn overthrow in the incident with Jezebel's priests. We have archaeological evidence of child sacrifice in Carthage, which was founded by the great niece, I think, of Jezebel of Tyre, so we can presume they would have been of the same religious cult. So Jezebel's priests would represent the Saturn archetype, while the priests of Yahweh would represent the Jupiter archetype. Of course, as the icing on the cake there, the nickname for Jupiter, Jove, would in classical Latin have been pronounced Yahweh or Yahweh, identical or nearly so to the Tetragrammaton. Though human sacrifice began to be phased out with the turning of the ages, it is something that does still happen all these millennia later, in some secretive circles often still linked to the Saturnian archetype. But for many years, it persisted just in all of the pagan religions on like every continent ever. So that's basically where my research for the last three weeks has terminated, but it does bring me to kind of the fanciful notions, the uh, thoughts that I have left, and those would be, are reptilians real? Are reptilians involved? Is the Order of the Dragon involved? Are they reptilians? Um, Vlad Dracula obviously gets his name from the Order of the Dragon, and then supposedly Elizabeth Bathory took imagery from the Order of the Dragon crest for use in her own crest, so perhaps that she was involved in the Order in some way, or rather associated with the Order in some way. And the Order of the Dragon is still so shrouded in secrecy. Historians claim that it was just a fraternal order, but I'm not convinced. There's a lot of occult symbolism there that makes me think that it was something more, and if it was just a fraternal order, I find it odd that a woman, the queen, was the co-founder. Finally, the last question lingering in my mind is, were the rumors about Elizabeth's vampirism put out there for the express purposes of distracting from the very real ritual human sacrifice that she was doing? I don't know. I want to do some more research on that at some point. I do still think there may have been a psychosexual cause to her crimes, but that's something to explore as well. And finally, it's important to remember that the Order of the Dragon being a reptilian conspiracy doesn't have to be real for Elizabeth to possibly have believed in it. So she may have used it as a model for her ritual human sacrifice, whether or not the Order of the Dragon was actually involved in those types of crimes. That's going to wrap it up for this week's episode. Take a gander at the show notes to find links to all the resources used in the making of this episode, as well as all the places you can find me. You can also go to beacons.ai slash whatsamhill to get a free sticker and show your support for the show. I'm so proud of you if you made it this far because it was a long ride. Until next time, may you never stop asking, what in the Sam Hill?